Hello, everybody. Uh, sorry for the, uh, the little drama. Um, I've got uh, Ross uh, Doubthat, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing your last name, Ross. You're, ve you're very close. It's, it's Doubthat. I don't know that my, um, my, my ESL tongue can handle this. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't sing like Garcia Martinez. No, it doesn't. You know, it's sort of a crude, a crude, like, Northern English kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I like the fact that I draft off the cachet of Garcia Marquez. Um, That's and, true, you do. And in fact, I'll, in I'll so many ways. Andrew Sullivan in the first take when he introduced me, he called me Garcia Marquez, which I actually find very flattering. <laughs> I just, I just, I just aspire to the day that one day somebody refers to Garcia Marquez and says my name instead. I wish, I just wish it went both ways. Um, so, so here we are with Ross, Ross Dowdhead. Um, there it is. I mispronounced it again. I'm just going to call you Ross. Sorry, Ross. You can. That's that's just fine. Um, so I'll I'll concede that I'm totally fanboying here. I've been a longtime reader of yours. Um, I I have to say, with all respect to your other colleagues, you're probably the only New York Times columnist I I consistently read. Um, if there was like a fantasy football league for columnists, and you could like construct your own fan fantasy newspaper, you'd be one of my starters in my my fantasy columnist uh, football league. I have to say, um, and it. I'll give you time to respond to Ross. You look fancy. No, I'm just I'm just gonna see how far you'll go with this. I figure <laughs> if I just stay silent, the level of complimenting might actually just increase over the next thirty. Well, minutes. I, well I thought you're. <laughs> well, I thought you were gonna ask who else is on the team. I, I I'd say probably David Brooks, maybe even Liz Bruning, even though I don't like her politics. Definitely Caitlin Flanagan. There's a few others I'd put on my on my fantasy op-ed op-ed list. Um, without even going into the free agents on Substack, of course. That's all. That'd be a whole separate draft. <laughs> that isn't Substack itself basically a sort of, you know, it, it is an effective fantasy a fantasy draft for. <laughs> uh, you know, that's what I keep telling the founders. They need to bundle it such that I could like pick Taibi Sullivan and a couple others and make it my own personal magazine and totally wall myself into my own bubble <laughs> without any need to talk to anybody else. Um, so the, the reason we're, we're, we're wrapping here with Ross is that he has a, a new book out that's coming out, I believe, October 26th, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Russ? That, that is right, as far as I know, yes. Cool. And I, I hardly recommend it. I think everyone should go out and pre-order it, um, which, by the way, is important because that means it accrues for Ross's first weeks of book sales, which is, which is a critical milestone. <laughs> um, that's right. It, it means I can get on the New York Times bestseller list without having that dagger next to the book indicating that I personally bought 50,000 copies of it in order, <laughs> in, order to, in order to get it there. Right, right. These, these are all the, this is the subtle iconographies of the, the jealous New York book world. That little dagger is meant to be, you know, in, you know plunged into your chest when they put it on there. <laughs> um, so uh, the, book, the book is called The Deep Places. And when I, you know, it's funny because you ping me like, hey, let's talk about my new book. It's coming out. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be another... Similar to your previous book, which I absolutely love, Decadence, which was a sort of very sweeping cultural analysis of what ails the, of the West. Um, this was very different, right? This, this is subtitled A Memoir of Illness and Discovery. And it revealed something about me that I obviously I, I, I knew nothing about, which is that you suffered from chronic illness for, I mean, the better part of a decade. I mean, something like six years, um, if I'm right with my dates. Um, and um, I, I have a lot of questions for you, but, but, but one thing I'll say, though, is that I'm so impressed. You've had this obviously successful writing career all throughout it. How did you manage to meet your, like, weekly column deadlines with what seemed like an absolutely debilitating illness? Well, so, I mean, 
the interesting thing, one of the many interesting things about the illness is that um, it's an illness that is often, um, well, basically people who claim to suffer from the chronic form of Lyme disease, which is this delightful illness spread by um, tiny ticks that, you know, crawl under your skin and inject you with terrifying bacteria. Um, it's, it's quite common for doctors to assume that the disease is psychosomatic or psychogenic. Um, so if, because it doesn't show up on blood tests or it shows up on some blood tests and not on others, um, there's a, you know, sort of official CDC approved approach to treating Lyme disease, which is to give people four to six weeks of antibiotics for it. And most people do in fact get better. Um, with that kind of treatment. And then the people who don't um, are told they have something called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, which is basically, you know, a medical way of saying, we don't, we don't have a clue what's wrong with you, but it's probably in your head. Um, so I spent a certain amount of time, especially early in the illness, um, before I even knew exactly what it was, certainly before I sort of groped my way to actual treatments for it, being told, usually in a fairly kind-seeming way, that whatever was wrong with me was probably a result of stress, anxiety, depression, you know, some kind of fundamentally mental disorder that happened to be manifesting itself in, you know, excruciating bodily pain <laughs> for reasons that were not, you know, were not, were not explained to me. Um, and the irony for someone Experiencing that kind of diagnosis is that from the beginning and really throughout the whole experience, which has been going on for six years now with thankfully a lot of improvement along the way, my mind was the only part of my body that, uh, or the only part of myself that actually seemed to continue to work. Um, so while there were, you know, there were days when it was extremely difficult to write newspaper columns and you sort of had to absolutely force yourself to do it. There were also a lot of ways in which the act of writing, of sort of forcing yourself out of your body into sort of a purely mental space or into the Internet's version of a purely mental space was, if not a relief, at least something that, you know, one of the few things that I was actually capable of doing. Um, and so that and so that but that created this, you know, it sort of heightened the strangeness of the dynamic of being told that your physical pain is somehow being created by some kind of mental problem because again and again, it's, I would sort of circle back to the sense that, well, actually my mind, my mind is still my mind. It seems unchanged from before the illness to afterward. And it's only everything else that has changed. Um, but that preservation for the most part is how I managed to continue to qualify for your fantasy pundit league in spite of everything else that was, that was going wrong <laughs> in our life. Um, with the other point being that, uh, you know, we, um, as readers can learn if they, if they pick up the book, we had made a huge real estate investment buying a house in the country. My wife was pregnant with our third child. Yeah, Russ, can, Russ, can, can I pause you there for, for yeah. one second just to address some of what you just yes. said? Um, uh, so, because um, I, I do want to get to the house thing because I also just bought a house. <laughs> um, you fool. But, but, I know, I know. It's, 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 I, I've already, like, literally the moment after I wired the mummy, I'm like, do I want to do this? Um, but let me ask you a few things there, because one of the interesting things about the book, right, is that I think you, 
you very much guide the reader, almost like Dante through an inferno, to use almost a cliche trope, through what I think Mukherjee in uh, The Emperor of All Maladies called the kingdom of the sick, right? Like when you get like a cancer diagnosis or any sort of serious health diagnosis, suddenly you're in this class of the infirmed, right? That shuttle between hospitals and doctors are in this and then are in some struggle against some unseen foe. And you've somehow left the world of the healthy. And I think you you managed to convey that very well, right? Um, how it it seemed to distance you, not just from the outside world, even from your family, even from your wife, right? Who often was puzzled by your various attempts to treat yourself. Um, and it, 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 it was, it, and I say this in a good way, because I think you conveyed the experience of it. It almost felt like a claustrophobic in a way. The, you know, like I, I'm remembering that device, like gadget that you bought that like vibrated or something that you had to hold on to and um, that you kind of use in your attic space because it was kind of weird <laughs> and you didn't want to, you didn't want your wife to see it. And that's, yeah, I'm, yeah. It, how was that? <laughs> well, so, right. I mean, so there, I think there are a lot of different, well, you could say there are a lot of different provinces in the kingdom of the suffering, if you wanted to extend the metaphor a little further, right? Um, so there's sort of, a, there's this basic shift that happens where you go from being a healthy person to being a sick person. And if you've been healthy for your whole life, as you know, with a few exceptions, I mostly had been, you really have no understanding of what it's like to be actually sick of, you know, on some sort of permanent, you know, inalterable seeming basis until it actually happens, right? So there's that sort of primary adaptation, but then there's obviously a huge range of ways to be sick and, you know, people dealing with a life-threatening diagnosis, treating cancer and so on. That's a particular kind of experience. And I'm what I'm describing in this book is a different kind of experience where you're terribly sick, you're sort of incapacitated in various ways. For me, it took the form of basically terrible physical pain all around my body, phantom heart attacks, um, for total sleeplessness, all, all kinds, basically a, a very wide range of interesting physical symptoms. But at the same time, you're not dying, right? You're not, hopefully, in, it's, it doesn't seem to be a terminal illness. And it's an illness that, you know, you can eventually get some kind of diagnosis for, but as with many chronic illnesses, there's no sort of clear or approved path of treatment. Um, so you end, you end up basically being forced deeper and deeper into sort of more and more experimental modes of treating yourself. And, you know, I mean, there are, in the case of Lyme disease, there's a big community of doctors who are sort of on the edges of medical orthodoxy who will, in fact, treat people who are sick this way for longer periods of time than the CDC approves or then, or then sort of official medicine allows for. Um, and I had a doctor, several doctors like that, and I could not have survived and gotten better in certain ways without them. But even with those doctors, you know, they're all sort of doing experimental things that sort of shifting from patient to patient, depending on the symptomology they're dealing with and what seems to work. Um, they don't have a sort of simple consensus about how to treat these kind of conditions. And so you really do end up becoming your own doctor to which, you know, again, it's just not, not an experience that would have been imaginable to my 34 year old self. Um, and yes, to the point, as I end up talking about in the book of not just 
taking lots and lots of antibiotics, not just experimenting with herbs and enzymes and all kinds of weird things, but, you know, yeah, going into the realm where you'll buy a machine that generates sound frequencies that are alleged to shatter bacteria the way a, uh, a high note in an opera might shatter a glass of water. Um, so yeah, the, and those are the kind of things, and at, at every stage you tell yourself, well, I'm going to do this weird thing, but I'm certainly not going to do the next weird thing. Cause that would, <laughs> that would just be crazy. And then six months go by. And if you haven't made any progress, you will happily go ahead and try something even weirder. Go ahead and try. Right. Now, it's funny. Part of the reason why you're, um, why your book resonated with me so much. I, I never had anything like, like your situation, but, um, when I was living in New York, I think for a, a collection of sort of lifestyle stress, sleep reasons, whatever, in my case, I think it was my psychology. Um, you know, I, I ended up having a, a basket of symptoms. I, I diagnosed myself. I think one of the things that I think came up in your conversation about fibromyalgia, which is a sort of feeling of general malaise that hits you with this bizarre cluster. And I had this for weeks and I think it was really just the Wall Street trading floor life was just killing me slowly is what it was. And as soon as I left it, it went away. But I think I, I, ra I randomly, I hit up against what you discovered, right? Which is like, you hit up the, the limits of human medical knowledge are, are quite low, right? And like, they test things, they see nothing, they go through those little mental flow charts about how various illnesses should play out. You're not in the flow chart. And so you go to the, you know, crazy bucket, basically. And then that's it. They just, they just stare at you and say, I don't know, deal with it. And so then what you do is, of course, you go to these forums and you find people who are obsessed with their own illness and treating their own illness. And then, of course, as you said, you find medical doctors who are often medical doctors, but they're kind of on the fringes of the sort of accepted medical world. And you're kind of on your own. Um, and uh, anyway, it reminded me of my own experience. And again, the, the, the solution, Mike, is... Well, in a lot of... Ahead, right. Yeah. And what's what's interesting, what I, I didn't fully realize right before this happened was that something like fibromyalgia, right, it it gets described as a diagnosis, right? It's, it's like, oh, you know, so-and-so was told she had fibromyalgia. That's their diagnosis. But in fact, when you drill down, all that fibromyalgia is is a description of symptoms, right? It's a way of saying, this is a category into which we place a set of physical symptoms whose genesis we can't fully explain, and we have some speculation, and, you know, here's a painkiller or an antidepressant. But you know, that's the the extent to which, and I, I was, you know, one of the many things that I was told that I had by doctors who didn't particularly want to treat me was, was fibromyalgia. And by the time that word got thrown around, I had sort of figured out that people telling you that you have fibromyalgia aren't actually telling you anything that's particularly useful, which right. is itself <laughs> kind, of an, kind of an interesting realization. No, I, I had the same thing. In my case, the, the antidote was simply moving from New York <laughs> and not working on Wall Street anymore. But, you know, I, I get the feeling, right? Like they dump you in the fibromyalgia bucket. And it's funny, at the time I was actually dating uh, a medical resident and she's like, oh my God, the fibromyalgia people, they're just hypochondriacs. You never want to meet, you, want, you never want to see anybody with that on their chart because it's like this litany of complaints. You could already see the medical establishment getting like exasperated at it. Um, so, um, which is which is peculiar. I mean, one of the one of the peculiarities of this experience, right, is that you, um, you know, th there's there's a sense in which official medicine, on the one hand, is very focused on you know material explanations, right? For you know any any condition needs to have a material explanation, and you know, and to the to the extent that it doesn't. Um, it probably doesn't exist. It's psychogenic and so on. 
at the same time, when confronted with conditions <laughs> for which there isn't an immediate material explanation, you often find that doctors are quicker than patients to retreat to the immaterial, right? Like you, you, and this is not, you know, this is something that happened to me, but once you spend a lot of right. time talking to people who have chronic illnesses, you realize this is very commonplace, right? That the patient wants the doctor to be a materialist to say, okay, you know, here's what has gone wrong in your system and here's how we're going to fix it. Or I don't know what's gone wrong in your system, but clearly something has. So let's experiment and explore. And then the doctor is the one who says like, well, it's, you know, mind body connections. It's just a big mystery. <laughs> you know, we can't, we can't fully, we can't fully understand this sort of, and it's a weird <laughs> reversal in a sense of what you, you know, in sort of, of the mentality that you would expect from in certain ways, modern medicine, right? Which you would, you would think would sort of hesitate to retreat to mystery, but in fact can be very quick to retreat to mystery if there isn't a fairly simple solution that's already in the medical textbooks waiting to be applied. Right. Doctors start as like materialist physicalists and then they end up as total Gnosticists at the end and just believe that there's a spiritual realm that is beyond the physical, beyond anything they have access to. It's, um, by the way, one thing I should probably mention for us is that Lyme disease may not be known to many people on the West Coast. It's actually not very common here. I know on the East Coast, when you go into the woods, like kids get tested for ticks and stuff. Basically, it's a disease that lives, or maybe you want to describe it. Um, as a yeah, it's a, it is a spirochete, which means it's a corkscrew-shaped bacteria um, that is carried by deer ticks, uh, which don't just don't just feed on deer they also feed obviously on human beings but um on chipmunks and you know mice a whole variety of animals so it sort of migrates around uh the wooded northeastern and increasingly midwestern and upper southern ecosystems and in fact there is now a fair amount of it in california um so you know your your west coast listeners should be at least a little bit a little bit beware if you look at the maps of lyme disease um you basically have maps that get darker and darker with cases starting in the Northeast and the Midwest in the 60s and 70s. But at this point, there are also Floridian and Californian outbreaks. Um, so it is, it's, it's more national than its origination in the lovely town of Old Lyme, Connecticut would, would necessarily suggest. Um, but it is something that sort of the, the working theory is that it's a pathogen that has spread because of suburbanization, um, which is why it sort of emerges in this theory in uh, the post-war American world. And then obviously climate change has altered habitat patterns and created a world where deer ticks are, are less likely to die off in the winter, for instance. So like in the state of Maine, which is where my mother's family is from, there's a lot more tick-borne illness than there used to be because the winters are not as, not as cold. And so fewer ticks die off in the frosts and there are more of them around in the spring and that expands their habitats and expands their numbers. Um, so th those are the basic dynamics at play with the disease. But then the bacteria itself has all these remarkable capacities. Um, I, one scientist who studied it told me that, you know, she'd been with some other scientists who said that it, it, it seems to move faster through tissue than through your bloodstream. Um, so it has this kind of burrowing quality, which is why Lyme patients end up with pain often in joints, knees, these sort of 
well, the, the title of my book is The Deep Places, which is obviously has like six different intended meanings, but that very literal meaning is one of them, that uh, the places you end up with the worst symptoms are often sort of the deepest places in your body where neither antibiotics nor your own immune system can can always reach. Yeah, it's funny. I had my own uh, Lyme scare I, back when I was living in the woods like a tree hippie on Orcas Island um, in kind of an off-grid setup. There was deer everywhere. And at one point, I did have some sort of tick bite or something. And I, I remember I took a, a prophylactic dose of doxycycline, which I think you were on, actually, because it's, it's considered the standard Lyme disease treatment, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. That's uh, that's one of the 12 or so antibiotics that I've <laughs> taken the last 12 years. But yeah, I mean, the, re- the reality is just in terms of sort of public service announcements, if you get a tick bite and take a prophylactic dose of doxycycline, you will probably be fine. And the challenge is the, the, the reason you end up with so many chronic cases is twofold. First, because chronic cases haven't been taken seriously. And there's been a tendency to assume that, you know, you only get Lyme disease if you have this famous bullseye rash around the tick bite. Um, so doctors would wait to prescribe antibiotics until something like that appeared, which was probably a mistake. Um, and then also it's very easy because the ticks are so tiny, especially in the spring when they're like the size of a poppy seed that, you know, you can have a tick go in you and come out and you just never notice it at all. And then, and Lyme disease can sort of, you know, it can creep up on you basically. So two years after you didn't notice the tick, you suddenly have fatigue or joint pain and so on. Um, and you're never, it's very hard to then trace that etiology back to the, back to the original bite. Um, but I, I do tell people who, you know, respond with sort of terror to what I have to tell them about life in the suburbs in the country, that if your kids come in with a tick and you give them a dose of antibiotics, you should probably feel pretty safe about, about them having something really harrowing happen to them. Ross, you've already scared the shit out of me. I'm, I'm actually already doing the calendar math. And when was the last time I was actually in the woods? Um, it's funny, the, 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 the crazy healthcare I actually had on Orcas was actually hantavirus, which is more common in the West than Lyme disease. And it's probably, it's more dangerous. It's, it's not chronic, but it can actually kill you. And uh, it's due to mouse droppings. And I, I had a whole scare about that too. In any case. Yeah, man. well, nature, I mean, nature wants to kill you, right? I mean, that's, that's or in the case of you. Lyme disease to essentially possess you for for decades decades and decades of time okay um so let's get back to your timeline is interesting and and it's also relevant to how you were even exposed to it because you know i think of you as a as part of the urban cosmopolitan elite class russ despite your uh, your religion and your politics and I, I see you as an urban person but as part of the story what triggered the whole story right um in fact how you open the book is you house shopping in new england for uh you know a bucolic dream and spending all of a day there, which is how this started. And in some sense, you, you bought a lot more than you expected when you, when you bought that farmhouse. Right. I mean, this, so this is a, the book is a illness story, but with the subtext of being a, you know, real estate disaster story woven in for people, for people <laughs> who enjoy that sort of thing. And, and yeah, it, it starts with my wife and I, we were both from Connecticut, uh, from different parts. I was from New Haven. She was from a someone more rural area. We were married and living in Washington, D.C. We always wanted to move back to New England. And I, in particular, had this sort of rural fantasy, right, of like the barn, the chickens, the kids playing in the fields, the stone walls, you know, um, the kind of the kind of antique 
antique house perched over a meadow um, that I, I think actually goes quite well with my, you know, my reactionary brand, right? Um, and and so we actually did this. It was a fantasy, and then there was sort of a series of events that made us want to sell our house in D.C., and we had jobs that would allow us to work from, you know, from the country, and as long as you were close enough to a train or to the city. Um, and see, so we went ahead and made this leap, and our house in D.C. sold it was, you know, a hot market. It sold for way over what we were asking. We had a lot of extra money and we just plowed it into a 1790s farmhouse on three acres <laughs> with a barn and fields. And yeah, it was almost certainly while walking the edge of those fields on the liter literal house inspection itself that um, I, I acquired Lyme disease. And but we were still in D.C. for several months after that point. And that was part of how the disease got really established, because I would see doctors and my blood work would be negative. Or I later learned sort of ambiguously negative, right, because there's sort of a range of, of uh, antibody reactions you can get in these blood tests. But they would say, well, you, you know, we're not seeing anything in your blood work. You have, you know, all these insane symptoms, but they don't show up on any of our tests. You're in a high pressure job. I mean, it was a version of, you know, the, the sort of the Wall Street theory of your own fibromyalgia, right? Like you're a New York Times columnist buying a big house and your wife is pregnant. You're obviously under a lot of stress and your body has just conjured up these symptoms as a result. And it was only when we somehow dragged ourselves up to Connecticut and actually made the move that, you know, the doctors up there would say, well, uh, <laughs> this is almost certainly a tick-borne illness. We see this. We see this kind of thing all the time. Um, but at that point, I was sick enough that I was, in fact, a chronic case. Right? I'd been sick for four months or so, and so, and and it didn't. The disease taking antibiotics stabilized things, but did not get me better. And so, for the next couple of years, we tried to live in this house in the country and live our rural fantasy while you know, my health was a total disaster. And the, the comparison, the analogy in the book, the literary and cinematic analogy is, is to The Shining, right? Except we're, we're both writers. Um, and I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there at my laptop instead of Jack Nicholson's typewriter, you know, banging, banging away on columns with a, you know, unhinged look in my eye, you know, my shirt off where I've been rubbing at some body part and Abby, my poor wife, is sort of trying to survive with a new baby and two kids in, yeah, in a sort of a, a kind of Stephen King landscape, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, no, that, again, you managed to project that that terribly well. And again, at the same time, being forced to make a living and write and all the other pressure. I mean, to me, that's that's been one of my nightmares of like, somehow being disabled and not being able to make a living and not being in a place where I could sort of deal with reality while also dealing with my own internal reality. I mean, one thing, and you get to this towards the end of your book, Ross, I mean, you're one of the topics that fascinates me, as you know, probably Ross, right. Um, is, you know, religion and public life and all that. And I think you're, you're one of the few sort of, you know, openly and avowedly religious writers in the sort of normie world or the elite world, even. Right. Not the, nor not the normie world, not sure, the normie but, world. No, 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 sorry, sorry. Yeah. sorry. Maybe um, maybe in your op-ed fantasy league, I'm one of the more religious writers. That's probably fair. yes. Although you mentioned well, your, your actual mentioned list, Liz. Brooks and Brunig, and all of them, you have a you know a a, a deep pro-religion yeah. bias. So, <laughs> um, well, certain religions, yes. But um, so 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious. I mean, it, one thought I had as, as you were telling your tale of woe, right? I mean, this is almost a tale of Job, <laughs> speaking of religion, the Bible, who's afflicted with this, you know, um, what seems like an unwarranted and sudden affliction. And then he, he retreats into his faith, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, God wins the bet with Satan in the, in the book of Job. And I was thinking, you know, Ross is such a religious guy. He, he takes so much solace in the mass and in his faith. At some point, religion is going to come save him or at least be a salve to his suffering. And it, it seemed like it sort of did. Yeah, I think it's I think it was more of a crutch than a salve is the best way, the best way to think about it um, in the sense that. I, you know, I had a few experiences that, you know, were not not supernatural, but at least pretty weird over the course of the illness that you could sort of see through the lens of religious interpretation as sort of signposts or helping hands or that kind of thing. Um, but there was never, there was never a sense that like, you know, there, there yeah, there, there was no sense of like that, that God is personally healing my wounds or, or anything like that. It's, it's much more that you end up in this situation. I think this kind of situation, either your faith sort of, breaks apart and you, you know, as Job didn't, I guess you sort of curse God or deny, deny his existence and, you know, decide that the universe is uh, ruth as ruthless and uncaring as a pathogen carrying tick. Um, or as I mostly did, you just, you sort of, you lean on the idea that all this has to be happening for some kind of reason. Right. And that's not necessarily, you know, a, a sort of completely rational perspective in the sense that like there's nothing about suffering that proves the existence of God one way or another. And I think it's totally reasonable for a sort of skeptical atheistic type to look at the fact that people who are suffering find solace in the belief that it's all happening for a reason and say, ah, you know, the fond delusions of a suffering humanity. Um, you know, it's fine. That's a totally reasonable point of view to take. Um, and, it, but having the experience itself happen de-intellectualizes it, right? You, you don't stand outside yourself thinking, well, am I being reasonable in desperately leaning on faith or anything like that? Instead, you go to church and you get on your knees and you beg God for help, right? And then the rest of the time, when the, when the only answer that's forthcoming is, you know, you got to keep going and keep doing weird shit <laughs> to try and get better, the rest of the time you tell yourself, all right, well, this is, you know, life is full of suffering. Right. And if there is a God, then suffering is necessary somehow for our purgation and transformation. And you have to deal with it and hope that in the mercy of God, you come out the other side. And that's not necessarily, I mean, that's like a helpful way of thinking. It's not always a comforting one, right? Because like maybe maybe your purgation and suffering is going to be lifelong. You know, there are obviously people who get sick and never get better, even if they don't die, they live with chronic illness for their whole life. So there's, there's no promise from that kind of theology that actually God at some point is just going to take it, take away the pain and your life will get back to normal. Um, but it's still, I think from a psychological perspective, still more helpful um, than treating this kind of experience as as a as a randomness it's just easier to carry something that you think is a burden that's been given to you than something that's just been dropped on you for no reason right um 
Right. I mean, that's the way I, I would see religion as well, right? I, I, it would be less to me sort of pleading God for, for mercy or a miracle and more, as with all stories, right, framing our, our experience in some, in some greater moral or narrative framework that seems to make sense. Um, and- well, but you, can do, but you can do both, right? I mean, yeah, because I, 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 to the extent that I was trying to analyze the situation, I was doing the latter, what you just described, trying to say, okay, I, this is the story of my life, and this thing has happened to me after a moment of pride and hubris where I was, you know, lavishing, <laughs> lavishing all of my columnists' earnings on this ridiculous rural retreat fantasy. And so what kind of lesson do you take from that? How is God redirecting me? You, you have all those thoughts, but then you also just beg for help. So, you, do, you know, it's, it's both and, not, not either or, I think. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm re- uh, tomorrow is uh, Simhat Torah, which is the, the Jewish festival of the Torah, in which the Torah is actually brought out and celebrated and danced with. You sort of celebrate the, the Torah. And at, at, typically when the Torah is taken out and then put back in, at the end, uh, you recite a line from Proverbs 3, which says, uh, it, meaning the Torah, is a tree of life for those who grasp it, and uh, those who draw near it are fortunate, right? The thought being that, you know, drawing close to this tradition in some sense is nourishing for those who are suffering. Um, w- one thing that also struck me, again, and this is just how your book selfishly resonated with my own personal trajectory. Um, I don't talk about it much, but at, at one point I did deal with a pretty serious bout of clinical depression. And um, I was in like this deep, dark hole. I was also in this rural thing on Orcas. And um, it was hard to deal. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to sideline the whole conversation through the depression thing, but it was a similar thing in which it was this big black hole, this big black nothing that you had to wrestle with every day. And one of the few sources of solace, getting back to why I quoted that, was actually what you quoted, right? Which is intellectual life and writing and reading. And it, it's funny when your body starts failing, at least I become a total Gnostic pro-singularity advocate, right? <laughs> Which means that, you know, the realm of the spirit is what predominates. The physical, what's seen is, is temporary. What is unseen lasts forever. And we should all be living either on some hard drive or as part of, you know, God's empyrean in the skies as some consciousness and that's it. And the body is nothing but filth and corruption and, and decay. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's interesting because I definitely became more of a dualist sort of in the, you know, right. sort of oversimplified Cartesian sense through this experience, because right to, to, to the extent that like you're in a dark place and yet, your mind or part of your mind still functions and you can sort of inhabit and, and inhabit intellectual life, inhabit debate and and these kind of things. You really do feel the sense of like your mind as something that is, that is contained in, but somehow separate from your body at the same time. Right. Which is not something, you know, in a, in a perfectly healthy existence, I think, you know, you've obviously like, you feel your mind is separate from your body to some extent, but there isn't that kind of bifurcation that you really feel when your body is like a prison, right? When it's like you have your true, what feels like your true self is sort of in there, but it's in, you know, in in my case, it was like the body was like this cage of pain, basically of muscles and bones and so on in, in pain. Um, But I sort of tried, you know, to, as a as a as a good Catholic <laughs> rather than a Gnostic, right? To to think of yeah, to, to sort of think of this in terms of sort of the necessity of the bodily experience, right? Where it's like, okay, you this is temporary. At some point 
even if you don't get better, your mind will be released, your soul will be released from this experience. Um, but it can't just be a prison. It can't just be like, you know, this demiurge or whatever has imprisoned you here and you need to get the upload and then all will be well. You, you need to sort of accept that you're in this body now in this kind of suffering for a reason and there has to be a specific good that that comes out of it right so i almost ended up with this kind of bias against like you know sort of strategies of prayer and meditation that are designed <laughs> to sort of to, to sort of separate the mind and body and soul and body a little bit i was more in a place of thinking like okay you just you know this is this is what this is what god from his empyrean is giving you and you have to you know you you have to you have to live with your body for as long as you can. Although if you read right, like if you read about, for instance, near death experiences, um, which you know I've done plenty of weird reading <laughs> in the last in the last five years or so. Often in those accounts, <laughs> there'll be this sense of like sort of overwhelming relief, release, right? Where you know you you have this feeling that you've been in this body that obviously a near-death experience the body is dying or failing in some way and then there's this moment of sort of liftoff um and certainly you have you know when you're chronically ill you can sort of imagine what that liftoff might might feel like and uh and look forward to it at some level right i mean it's worth flagging that gnosticism is in fact a christian heresy right in this in this house <laughs> you're against that. gnosticism <laughs> I'm sure there's some flavor of Protestantism in which it's not true, but um, yeah. yeah. No, I need I need one of those in this house signs that just lists all the Harris oh. I'm, I'm, I'm against. <laughs> right? That would, yeah, that would that would spice up the neighborhood probably. Um, so I, out of curiosity, I, so somewhere in the house, so are you in that, the pharmacy that you buy, but I, I, the impression I got is that you actually ended up selling it fairly quickly. Right? Yes. Yes. We, well, we didn't sell it quickly, but we, we left it after two years and then it took a good deal longer to actually sell it. Um, but we are now, we are now back in walkable urbanism, except in New Haven rather than Washington. Um, so we're in the town where I grew up, where I never expected to return full time and yet we've been here for i guess now four years um and i've been good overall so i i i assume that that part of the the redirection <laughs> of our of our life was correct and we just weren't supposed to live we weren't supposed to live the wendell berry agrarian return to the land and we're not and i can promise you we never will again <laughs> I can, and I can see why. And and just so that this is not just a tale of woe, you also had a child in the middle of the story, right? Another source of the yes, story, yes. Right? We had a fourth. We had a fourth child, and that was, you know, of course, at a certain point, a source of deep uncertainty about whether we could have another child, and you know, was I well enough? Had I gotten better enough? Would I fall off a cliff again? That kind of thing. And you know, we sort of worked our way up to being brave enough to take the leap of faith and have the child. And of course, uh, a month and a half before she was born, there was a small global pandemic that you may have heard, heard a thing or two about. Um, we got COVID. Right. Wait, yeah, exactly, what exactly. pandemic? I've just been sitting here I doing Zoom with it. I haven't even noticed. What the hell? What do you mean? Antonio, it's the pandemic. <laughs> yes, um, yes, the pandemic. Yeah, so there was a pandemic and, um, 
and I I brought home COVID from the book tour for the Decadent Society and gave it to my eight month pregnant wife, and it was very unpleasant. We came through it, but then Rosemary, our fourth child, was born. I think the day deaths peaked in Connecticut in this totally empty hospital. So that that was itself, you know, a sort of micro a, a micro story of you know had we had we known what was about to happen in the world, we probably would not have conceived a fourth child. But in fact, you know, we're extremely happy that we did. And, you know, you can draw whatever lesson you want from that. But that's, yeah, that's one of the places where the story, the story in the book uh, ends. Yeah, well, I, you know, to, to, to cite the cliche, life finds a way. The number of kids born in battlefields, prison camps, pandemics, all the rest of it. Humans just can't stop uh, doing their thing. It seems like they only start reproducing when, in fact, they have no threats to them, <laughs> when, in fact, there's nothing really to worry about that they stop having children. Um, so interesting. Um, so I, I don't know if you want to say something else about the book, uh, Ross, since I've got you on the line and we've got a few more minutes, I, I would love to ask you yep. a few other things. Again, I, I really do like your your writing yep. and I, I really enjoy Decadence, which, by the way, I was that was part of my pen, um, pandemic reading early on. I go drive for hikes and I listen to uh, your book. Um, and, you know, your book is basically, you know, decadence, which I think at least people who read me and I'm a little cynical about where Western civilization is, this won't be news. But, you know, the, the thought of a certain listless torpor, a certain repetition in artistic forms that, you know, every every film is a rehash of a World War II plot or like literally a superhero movie. This all kind of just smells of decadence. And... You know, I, I, I tweeted yesterday, it, it went surprisingly viral. I never know what's going to work and what's not. But I, I tweeted about how, like, no political faction seems to have any sort of forward-looking generative vision for the future, right? Like, where you are in the political spectrum, in some sense, is decided by what year we should magically return to. <laughs> and if you're a neoliberal, that's 2010 and Obama. And if you're a trad, that's 1952 and Eisenhower and, you know, whatever else, right? Um, and so I'm curious... You, who I think diagnosed the problem so well, if you're willing to issue, I mean, I don't know about a, a cure, a cure I think is asking too much, but a prognosis of, of where this is going. And if, anything, if your opinion has changed at all in the, whatever it is, two or three years since the, the book came out. Well, I mean, you know, the book came out obviously at the, literally a month before the, the coronavirus um, hit, hit the Western world in earnest, right? And so it's always um, a little challenging to promote a book talking about how we're stuck in torpor and just repeating ourselves and nothing new is happening at a moment when obviously something really new and dramatic was happening uh, in, in the world, right? So there's one, right. and obviously, you know, as a, as a writer, you want to defend your own thesis, but you also want to be open to um, the God of history showing you new things, right? So I try to be open to the possibility that COVID is this kind of hinge, and the possibility that, you know, my book describes really well the world of 1970 to 2020, which I think I think it does, but maybe doesn't describe whatever exciting new development is awaiting us on the far side of the pandemic. Um, but I, I do what what's what has struck me both under coronavirus conditions and in the sort of broader um, sort of populist uh, populist socialist period, right, of the last four or five years, is that on the one hand, there's definitely more novelty in Western politics or more sort of more radicalism and quasi-utopianism um, 
in the last five to 10 years than there was in the preceding period, right? So, you know, there were not a lot of Catholic, Catholic integralists and radical socialists running around the debates of 2004 or so when I was starting out as a pundit. And now, now there are, right? Like there was Donald Trump was, not, you know, was not about to be elected president. And he was, he was in fact elected president. And, you know, similar developments in European politics, um, similar sort of shifts rightward or leftward wouldn't have been imaginable. So there is, there is some more sort of ferment and discontent with decadence and revolts against it in our world right now than there was when I first conceived of the idea of the book um, a long time ago before I got sick. But at the same time, a lot of it really, it still feels like, well, versions of what you said. I think that's a good way to put it. The, the idea that every faction has a, has a year or a period that they're struggling to return to. And you know, so there's sort of sort of socialist vision of the the bright dawn before neoliberalism came along and <laughs> took us on, you know, took us on the wrong path. And, you know, the sort of neoconservative and centrist critics of Donald Trump just want to get us back to the glorious beginning of um, the post the post Cold War era. And religious conservatives want to get back to either just a more Christian America 50 or 60 years ago, or maybe more radically sort of the pre-Reformation world. And, you know, I think there's value in looking backwards. Like, you know, the term Renaissance implies looking backwards in order to create a rebirth, right? There's any, any kind of forward movement in human history has to draw to some extent on the past. But I do feel like our radic- our forms of radicalism and reaction haven't figured out the second half of that, right? They they have they've figured out how to look to the past to critique the present, uh, sometimes very successfully, but they haven't figured out how to translate that critique into a real confident vision for the for the future. And it's it's interesting. Just I I've been reading. Um, on our summer drives with our kids, we ended up listening to the Les Mis soundtrack a lot, uh, like a lot. And at a certain point, I actually broke down and mm-hmm. bought the Victor Hugo novel, which I've never read. And I may not, I may not finish it. I'm, you know, 400 pages in wow. with a thousand pages to go or something. But what's, what's striking reading that <laughs> book is that, among many other things, it's just this sort of sheer unbridled confidence about sort of the, the directionality of history, right? Where, you know, Hugo didn't have a sort of his own sort of completely distinctive ideology. He started out as a more conservative figure and became a more liberal, liberal figure. Um, but he's not like a sort of stand in for sort of a, a distinct ideology. He's just sort of grabbing from, you know, the revolution here and the romantics here and Catholicism over there. And it's it's less that he has sort of a singular idea about the future of the world and more that he just there's just this confidence pulsing through the book that the world is going somewhere. And all of these crazy things that Europe has lived through, revolution, restoration, Napoleon, um, are all sort of providence moving these pieces around to set up some greater drama, greater transformation yet to come. And even in the most sort of, you know, fascinating, fascinating socialist or integralist or whatever of our own age, you, I, you, I just don't think you get that sort of Hugovian 
sensibility, that sense that like we're we're on our way to whatever the heck is coming in 2070 or something. Um, and that anyway, that's that's sort of a, a detour, but maybe an illustrative one for our purposes. Yeah, it's it's a great novel. I read it in college and it made a deep impression on me. Uh, I think it's probably worth your while to go through the thousand pages, even if he spends, you know, 30 pages on the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> the, ba- the Battle of Waterloo, my God. I mean, well, that's the other thing though, right? <laughs> Just as an aesthetic matter, I-, I read that and then I read some of the new Sally Rooney novel, um, which has, you know, to its great credit, actually sort of broken through and become a conversation piece in a way that it's hard for novels to do these days, uh, in part cough because of decadence. Um, but like the difference between the, just the blazing confidence with which you would say, the world needs my 40-page reconstruction of the Battle of Waterloo, which has very little to do with the plot of my novel, but I'm just going like, <laughs> to damn well go ahead and do it. And this kind right. of, this kind of in, insane modesty of the sort of Rooney-style fiction, and she's very talented and there are really good things in the novel, but like it's just always sort of hesitating to you know just sort of do anything to do anything too crazy and this is her most sort of anti-decadence novel it's got a bit of religion it's got you know it's got sort of more discontents with early 21st century life um but there's just you know yeah there's there's you cannot imagine a a big artist of today doing the 40 page the 40 page waterloo waterloo detour i mean it'd be like in the middle of a marvel movie um if they were like you know all right we're going to you know stage an opera a, a, a long opera depicting you know the genesis of some alien race that's semi-relevant to the plot right 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 I, I think people had a lot more time back then. Although I have to say, I mean, I, his description is the only one that made me actually understand what happened at Waterloo. I think every other historical description uh, didn't really convey exactly how confused the battle really was and how close it really was as as a battle. Um, um, and of course, he wrote it in 1862, right? Which was, getting back to your point about it was so full of life. I mean, this was modernity in high gear, right? It was the middle of the American Civil War, right? Which Europeans were following in a big way. Um, it was industrialization. It was... Um, you know, all the revolutions of um, of all the national revolutions of the 1860s were happening right around then. Or um, so, anyhow, it, it, it was a busy time, and um, it was, it was active. It was active, right? I think the things you cited, like the Catholic integralism or the socialism or whatever. I mean, it, it's at this point. Let's just personalize it. It's like Vermeul and Brunig, right? The, the Vermeul and Brunig fact wings of the political spectrum. Um, but that's what, again, this is me with my Jewish uh, yarmulke on. That's what Christian societies do, right? They devolve into like millenarianism when they feel in a panic. It's like, it's like the, you know, it's like I fall and I can't get up, like those old commercials from the 80s. Like the I fall and I can't get up button for Christian societies is the apocalypse is nigh. Jesus is coming. We must refactor society for the newfound utopia. That's what they always do when they fall down, <laughs> um, for better or worse. Uh, but... I, I, but I don't know if we've actually gotten that this time. I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of like millenarian posturing, right? Like there's a lot of people right. who will tell you climate change is about to destroy the world. Um, you know, fascism is about to destroy America, these kind of things. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like in the past, Christian societies were better at generating than the like 
crazy monastic movement that responds to the looming apocalypse in a way that actually proves fertile for the next 200 years. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, against, against your Jewish skepticism, I'm, you know, I'm saying insufficient, <laughs> insufficient Christian millenary, millenary and zeal might be a problem right now. Really? We, we want another, uh, we want another uh, siege of Moonster situation. That's I mean, we, we have with the well, chess. We, well, when you know, we want people. Do, we want. I mean, well, no, that's that is the dilemma of decadence, right? Is that most of the ways out of decadence involve the risk of violence, tragedy, horror, and so on, um, which means that it's always <laughs> safer. It's until it's not right. Until the system just stops working, it's always safer right. to stay a little bit inside the bubble. Um, and I'm certainly as guilty of this as anyone, which is probably why God decided that I needed to be visited with some horror and suffering inside my bubble um, to teach me a thing or two. I can see that. I mean, I think it's a beautiful way of parsing it. I mean, I wonder myself if it's time to get out of the bubble and if, you know, um, I mean, the only place in the West that seems to be in capital H Fukuyama in history is Israel right now. Right. And the, you know, people are still willing to fight and die over holy real estate in Israel in in a way that, um, I, I, yeah, I was actually talking to Ben Shapiro yesterday, and um, I think this is going to get me either canceled or fought or both. But um, the he suggested building a synagogue on the Temple Mount <laughs> and having Jews pray up there. And I'm like, man, and I, it's funny, I've been to the Temple Mount. When I went to Israel, they were, they were still letting like random tourists up there. And it's like the most ordinary public plaza you've ever seen in your entire life. <laughs> it's like, why the hell is everyone fighting over this thing? And um, anyhow. Um, but yes, like you said, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to avoid cancellation by suggesting that that particular strategy of restarting history, um, is, is, uh, not one that I would endorse. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't know how I feel about it, but, um, the, the point really is if you decide to recrank the history machine, then yeah, I mean, it's, (laughs) then it's, then it's real horror, then it's real drama. Then, and that's. I mean, it'll definitely improve our Netflix selections. I mean, if you look at, for example, the resurgence. I mean, you, you used to be a, a film critic, right? If if you look at the the sort of renaissance of Israeli TV and film, uh, and the fact that so many American remakes of Amer- of Israeli shows, it's because they still are in a vital, you know, in history situation. They don't, they don't have to go and strip mine the Vietnam War and World War II to have you know important conflicts of of major import there it's it's their daily life right and you see it reflected in their culture in a way that you don't see it in ours and 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 the i mean the israeli import that i've spent the most time recently with is shtisel right and what you see there is not is less about sort of you know the the press of um conflict conflict with the palestinians or with their neighbors and it's more about how the structured rules of a religious world create sort of perpetual domestic drama of the kind that used to animate like the 19th century novel in the West. Um, but secular and, and so right. secular people or, you know, religious people like me who are not actually part of a sort of ultra religious community can really enjoy watching a show that depends on that kind of drama um, without, you know, without actually wanting to go and, impose those those kind of rules and strictures on ourselves um and that's and that's incredibly key to understanding like a lot of prestige tv in the united states right it's like i want to go live in 
the world of, you know, the advertising men of the late 50s or the New Jersey mafioso and sort of step outside the end of history into these like, you know, in, into these zones of, of patriarchy and chaos, <laughs> right, or something. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean you actually want to be a, you know, a foot soldier for Tony Soprano. Um, yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, I don't know if you saw that the Schissel's being, re- speaking of um, how a decadent society tries to remake a non-decadent society. There's an American remake of Stiesel, which is nothing to do with the show that you're watching and is kind of like this Romeo and Juliet romance between uh, an Orthodox Jew and a secular person and the collision of worlds. Because I think um, doing what you just said, which is looking at how a religious structure creates personal drama, I think is something that, I don't know, I think it's hard for many Americans to connect or would be hard for many Americans to, co- to connect to. Um, it's, it would be too well, far. Yeah, I mean, maybe, right. There's that whole range. But, but this not, which show is that? That's not the one made by the woman who made um, Fill the Void, is it? No, no, that, that's, um, that's unorthodox, I think, is the one you're describing. Maybe yeah, I'm, unorthodox, right. It's about, right, so right. In a, right, we have a, there's, yeah, there, there are shows about breaking away from that kind of life. That, which also, I mean, that's the, that's the drama of liberalism, right? The drama of liberalism is the drama of breaking away from traditional society. And that is also the, you know, it's right. sort of a source of drama, frisson, interest, um, and aesthetic triumphs. It's just that once that breaking away is fully achieved, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> you, you have to, you have to reconstruct um, the traditionalism in order to break away from it again. I guess. I mean, that's a charitable interpretation. I think liberalism attempts to frame any sort of religious life as just subpar and foolish and backwards and fussy. And again, if Orthodox, if the New York Times ever covers Orthodox Judaism, it's only to describe somebody leaving it or having challenges with it <laughs> or it being broken in some way. In, in a way, but there's also this, this sense, I think, in the arts. I think artists in a liberal society are attracted to moments between traditionalism and full liberalism. So like a show like Downton Abbey, right, draws its appeal from its sort of liminal status. It's like the old aristocracy is about to break down, but it's still there. And that's really interesting. And that's, you know, that's sort of a source of drama and fascination or like a show like Call the Midwife, right? I don't know if you have, that's maybe, maybe not, not quite your cup of tea, but it's like midwives in an industrial city in England just before the sexual revolution, also just before the NHS has really gotten underway. Um, but it's not just a show about like, oh, the old days were terrible. It's a show that's about sort of the appeal of these moments of transition. And I think there's, you know, there's some sort of desire sort of inherent in liberal society that like, if only we could remain in that moment of transition and have, you know, as Austin Powers said, you know, freedom and responsibility, right? Like this sort of like, you know, the, 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 the old authority is still there, but there are new liberties and they're both sort of in creative tension with one another. Um, And I I think that, I, I think it's not as simple as, liberals just want to reenact the escape from tradition. Sometimes liberals also want to live in the moment when tradition and the escape from tradition are both live possibilities. Well, to to that end, I know we're getting a little bit uh, 
late, Ross. I don't know if you had a hard, if you had a hard stop, but I, I will give you maybe just a, a whirlwind question. It's kind of like Tyler Cohen does. <laughs> no, he's, not he's, under don't, or he's the toughest but, interview uh, in in American life. So just you know, just be gentle. I know, I know. He's 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 the big boss of the of the podcasting. I know. I one one day, hopefully, I'll 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 be able to go up against it. Um. Well, so um, getting to the issue of generative liberalism again, you, you diagnose decadence. You yourself are are religious. I'm curious if. If you were to choose whether the future is, you know, something like woke socialism or more, more neoliberalism with woke characteristics or, in fact, populist nationalism or, in fact, a resurgence of religiosity in life. I mean, do you see history unfolding in any of those directions or do you see just more of the same but worse? I mean, if, if you were a betting man, um, wh- where would you see Western society going? So my I have this reputation for being like some kind of weird Pollyanna because I write all these columns arguing that Donald Trump, you know, is not was not actually likely to pull off a coup in 2020 and uh, and isn't isn't right. going to succeed in pulling <laughs> one off in 2024. Um, but the at the bottom of that analysis, I feel like is an assumption that this era is kind of a rehearsal for an action for for a deeper crisis that we're you know some time of span oh, some some time span away from but not an incredibly long time span away from right so in being sort of optimistic about the resilience of the American republic amid trump's particular kind of you know reality tv adventurism i i think i i think that this is a, a sort of rehearsal for a deeper crisis. I would just bet on the deeper crisis showing up in 2045 versus versus 2024. Um, so that that's my actual my actual bet is not on any particular ideology sort of triumphing or transcending in the next generation, but on a kind of this is a period of destabilization followed by a temporary period of restabilization followed by a point at which sort of the contradictions get the contradictions get sharpened, whether those are the contradictions between, let's say, you know, a Europe, an aging Europe with steep population decline and a booming Africa just across the Mediterranean, or the contradictions in the United States between, you know, pieces of pieces of society that where sort of um, civic society is totally falling apart and pieces where it's being sort of put back together. I, I think. I, anyway, I, I'm. I don't want to ramble too much, but I. I think. I think we've seen in the populist era the exposure of a lot of tensions that can be managed successfully in this generation that may not be manageable by the midpoint of the 21st century. You know, I think that's right. I think we there's a number of contradictions implicit in our society that we're sort of papering over in various in various dumb ways. And at some point they'll come to a head and we just simply can't do it anymore. Um, I'm always, you know, it's funny. I probably have some epigenetic trauma from my parents who fled the Cuban revolution. And then my grandparents who fled uh, Franco in the Spanish civil war before them. And in my family, we've had three sets of passports in three generations. And um, I think Americans have lived in such a relatively short lived period of peace and prosperity. They don't, I guess it's not palpable to them how, how an order can simply crash or go away or, you know, things can just get worse and that they don't necessarily always progress and they can get worse really quickly um, to the extent that you're packing bags and packing your kids on planes to get out of there. So some part of me 
um, is a pessimist in that regard and thinks that you're right. And I, if I were to take the over under on, I think whatever date you said, 2040 or something, I'd probably take the under on that in terms of when this, when this crisis happens. Um, but I don't know. I'm a pessimist. Um, one last question, uh, Ross. Well, two, maybe. You mentioned the novel. So what, it, it, does the novel have a future? Does the novel matter anymore? Or is it just dead as a form? Is it like the epic poem or something that's just this, it's this artistic, it's this artifice that just doesn't matter anymore as a, as a vital form? I, I, think it's, I think it doesn't matter that much as a mass, as a mass form. Um, and I think the, the only way, I mean, I, I guess my, my basic view is that sort of, as far as I can tell right now, real aesthetic renewal and re-aesthetic renewal in the Western world depends in part on figuring out how to master the internet, not do away with it, but sort of not let it just sort of plunge us into sort of a perpetual addiction to a festival of trivialities, which is how I experience it in my, in my own, in my own life. Right. <laughs> so it's not, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, there was sort of a last, a last gasp of the great American novel as an important form in the kind of, you know, Tony, late Tony Morrison, early Jonathan Franzen era um, that basically evaporated uh, with the development of the iPhone. I, I, I think the the iPhone the iPhone world and the novel world, you know, the movies challenged the novel, but the novel could adapt to the movies as a competitor. I don't think it adapts successfully to the iPhone. Um, but I think it's hard to do serious aesthetic work in the landscape created by social media and iPhones. Um, so that's sort of a that's a conundrum, <laughs> and and I don't I don't know exactly what what the resolution is to it. Um, but my bias in my own life or thinking about like education and what I want for my children is, you know, that you, you want to sort of try and create and sustain uh, internet free or social media free zones within a society that has the internet and see what, see what happens basically. If, if you do that, like what happens to, what happens to the, to kids if you are educating them without the internet for extended periods of time and then sort of putting them into an adult internet-based society, that, 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 that kind of thing. Um, I guess the argument, you know, the, the counter argument is that maybe we're on the cusp of a scale of sort of creativity in virtual worlds in, you know, sort of Oculus style riff, Oculus riff style world building that will create new aesthetic possibilities that the internet hasn't supported, but soon will. Um, and I would probably be the wrong person to assess that if it really were happening. <laughs> I think you're right when, in terms of diagnosing the, the last raw of the novel. I think the, the last novel that I can think of that was sort of like a national cultural moment was probably Franzen's The Corrections, at least in my memory, and I, which I thought was a phenomenal novel, by the way. But I, it, it seemed as if that was the high watermark for the medium, at least in my cultural memory. Um, it, I find it interesting that Chuck uh, Palahniuk, or however you pronounce his name, just uh, signed up for Substack, and he's serializing his next novel on Substack. And that's Simon Rush. Simon Rush. Every, well. Everything is on Substack. Well, I mean, Substack. Substack is every trying to. Speaking of going backward, right? Substack is sort of trying to get back to what blogging culture offered when I was when I was yes. starting out as a journalist. Um, but then, so then the question right. is, can you go back to that while also doing something genuinely? new and you know that i mean yeah the fact that polonia and Rushdie are on substack 
in a way that, you know, you would not have imagined um, major novelists necessarily blogging, although there were blogger novelists 15 years ago, is in a way a positive sign. And look, the fact that Substack can pay people for their work is is actually really important. Like, you don't get the Sistine Chapel right. unless, you know, somebody is a patron, right? You need... you and right. And Substack maybe creates some sort of middle ground between you know, sort of traditional media advertising and subscription and, you know, having Lorenzo de' Medici as your patron because you can have hundreds or thousands of patrons and so on. Right. Um, but then there's still the dilemma of, like, how do you do work that rises above a certain level where your frame, your context is the Internet as we know it right now? I think that's I think it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's a liberalization of everything. Like Welbeck said in Existence du Domaine de la Lutte, right? The, I mean, he applied it to the courtship and, and sexual domain, but the fact that there's no elite gatekeeping, right? There's no one, there's no, there's no elite gatekeeper who says, this is what you should be reading now, right? It, it simply is the market. Like I look at my subs curve, or, well, you've got a sub stack as well. And I'm, I'm basically think about- my, I, have, I, have a, I have a low, a deliberately low energy sub stack, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, you've you've got you've got your own audience, and and, and you don't necessarily need Substack. But I look at it, and it's like, man, I'm just like an app developer with my users, and I've got a churn rate, and I've got a set of inbound. It really is almost like running a startup. It just so happens to be that it's you know the AGM product of which this interview is part of it. That is the sort of product being sold, which on the one hand is kind of terrible, on the other hand, obviously it's kind of liberating. So I, yeah, I don't know how I feel. How I feel about it. Um, okay, I'll, I'll leave it there, Ross. I mean, one last question: What's next? I mean, it's it at, at the end of your book. It's it's a very positive. By the way, we kind of painted the book as being very depressing, but the end is actually super uplifting. And you know, you have this realization as you're swimming on the beach that I am alive. That in some sense, you have you have stuck to it. You have pushed through the Borg, you, you've you, or the nothing, and come out on the other end alive. And um, so, it's a very uplifting book at the end of the day. And what what's what's next other than the weekly column? I, I honestly don't know for sure. I have, I, well, I, <laughs> okay. I have, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm hoping to figure that out by the time I'm done promoting this book. Cause I have like two and a half potential book projects to other small projects, but, but none of them wow. are things, they're, they're things I'm deciding like how far to push, push forward on them. But sadly, I don't think any of them are going to, re-energize cultural civilization. And I'm actually hoping, I, I will say that one, one small, one way I thought about this book about the deep places was that, you know, it's not exactly proposing a cure for Lyme disease, but it is sort of proposing, you know, ways to think about how to better treat devastating chronic illnesses. And, you know, in, in a certain way, just something like that can be a way to strike a blow against decadence, right? Instead of sort of defining the problem in this sort of broad, impossibly broad terms, as I'm sometimes worried I do in my writing, I, you know, you pick a discrete area where we're sort of decadent and stagnant and not moving forward, not figuring things out. And you say, you know, here's, here's a potential way of thinking about how to fight tick-borne illnesses. So, if the fight against tick-borne illnesses is improved in a small way by this book, then I will feel like maybe I've done more against decadence in that way than I ever did in diagnosing it generally. No, I think that's, that's definitely one very um, empirical method of ethics, right? Just anything that fights the entropy and creates more order 
is probably the universe towards the universal good as defined by various Western civilization or Western religions. Right. And so I think in some part, that's what you're doing um, with that. Um, cool. Well, thank you, Ross. I'm going to end the show here. Maybe hang around for two seconds yep. uh, on zoom. And I'm going to thank you everyone for joining us. I'm um, thank you for joining pull request. I will transcribe this and also share as a regular podcast. Uh, even though everyone here obviously is on call in, but for those who aren't, um, so I'm going to end this show right now and thank you.